2: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 1988, I went to Rahway Prison in New Jersey, now called East Jersey State Prison, to do research for a film. Over the course of two weeks, I interviewed several inmates who were incarcerated there. I met armed robbers, rapists, drug dealers, and murderers, and I'll never forget one minute of it. For over 40 years, Martin Horn's career has focused on men like the ones I met and the prisons they live in. He's held every imaginable job in corrections, from debating the fairness of states' sentencing guidelines to fixing leaky water pipes in aging facilities. In 2002, Mayor Bloomberg appointed Horn Commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation. A year later, in an unprecedented move, Bloomberg gave Horn an additional job, Commissioner of Corrections. Horn held both positions until he left in 2009. Leaving public office has allowed Martin Horn to be more vocal about his opinions on prisons, sentencing, and how to deal with our nation's drug problem. I would legalize drugs across the board. You would legalize Um, which drugs? All of them. You would legalize all drugs? Yes. Yes. That's a pretty... Yeah, I, well, I'm I know, stunned. Well, I wouldn't say that. I
0: wouldn't say that while I worked for a governor or a mayor right. who was an elected official. Now, why wouldn't you say that
1: then, as opposed to now? Because I had a mortgage to pay. Martin Horn's career in corrections started right out of college.
0: My first job was as a New York State parole officer. And how did you? What was it that led you down that path? <laughs> um, I graduated college. I was 21 years old. I needed a job. And um, I took a civil service test. New York State at that time had a test called the Professional Careers Test. And it was sort of a generalist examination. And if you passed it, it qualified you for a variety of positions. And Where did so you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn. Right. What part? Uh, in uh, Flatbush.
1: My father's from Fort Graham. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well... So you took this test. Did you ever want to be a police officer? Was that your first? No,
0: I wanted a job. So were your family in civil service and police and law enforcement? No, not at all. When I took the job, I didn't know there was such a thing as a parole officer. I had never thought of it.
1: And then what, so you took this test and what happened?
0: I took this test and I got fairly good grade. And so I started getting job offers from the state of New York. I got an offer to become a purchasing agent for what was then called the East Hudson Highway Authority. I got an offer to be uh, a, a business office person at Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. But then I, I actually, I, I took the job to become a parole officer. I, had, I knew a guy who was doing it. He said it was a good job. They trained you. The pay was- How good. long was the training? Well, actually, I was in a two-year traineeship. It was two years. And they it was on the job training. They started you with about six weeks of classroom training. The first thing they did was they assigned me to a, a unit they had then, which they no longer have, called the employment unit. And our job- we would get uh, paperwork on uh, individuals who were coming home from New York State prisons who needed jobs, and we literally pounded the pavement in New York City, walked all over. We each had sort of a, a neighborhood. I had Long Island City, and each day I got five or ten guys' names and, and their backgrounds on little uh, five-by-eight cards, and I'd have to go out and find them jobs. What was people's attitudes toward employing those people back then? Well, well they actually, we had a very sophisticated system. We knew employers who had previously hired employees. So they Kiprick, were disposed. And they were disposed. And many of them said, look, I hired a guy from Clinton, and he was the best guy I They trusted I had you, and, me me and they relied one.
1: on you to set him up with decent right. guys. That was right. our,
0: That was our job. So we did that for about six weeks. Then they actually sent me to Sing Sing for, I think, two months, where I had to... Um, Meet with inmates who were becoming eligible for release on parole and help them to prepare for their appearance before the board of parole and write a report about them to the board of parole. Then they sent me to a unit uh, back then before a man or woman could be released from prison. They had to have an acceptable residence and a job, a real job. And uh so, the, so the, you were it,
1: interacting during this time with Yes, but I wasn't responsible for supervising.
0: I was I was re- interacting with families. I was learning how to do investigations. So for the
1: guy that took this test in 1969 who didn't have an eye toward this kind of work, w- when you were interacting with these people, what did you take from it? It was fascinating.
0: Where else do you see the varieties of human behavior? Uh, I and was drama. a kid who the drama I had grown up in a uh, middle class home in Brooklyn, uh, on the edge of Brownsville. Uh, I was familiar with Brownsville in East New York. Uh, there were adjacent neighborhoods. Right. Tough uh, area then. W- yes, not as tough as now, right. not as desperate as now. But Oceanville, Brownsville o- o- was a tough Oceanville, yeah. I was, you know, there working was, there. That was known Hill. as a tough area yeah, back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the desperation of the families and, more importantly to me, the dignity of the families that were making it. I used to come home and say what's remarkable is not how much crime there is but how little crime there is when you see how people – are living, right. right? And so to this day, when how people, much people talk about do the try relationship between, between poverty and crime, I say, listen, there are more people who grow up and live in poverty who don't commit crime and than they do. And live with it. Yeah. yeah. And and so it was fascinating. And then, you know, before I turned around, it just turned into a career and I enjoyed it and I did well when at When did it. you become an a,
1: a, a actual parole officer Where you were- uh, Well, after, how long after, after
0: the first year, you went from being a parole officer trainee one- to becoming a parole officer trainee too, classic civil service. And then at the end of the second year, you became a full parole officer and you got more cases assigned to you and you worked fairly independently. Did your attitude, and
1: this is a very broad question, but did your overall attitude toward paroled inmates evolve over the years where you were more at eye level with them and hands-on with them? And did it change? You became more of an administrator and then you became head of the department.
0: I, I really think that my attitude towards imprisoned and formerly imprisoned people was formed during those early years as a parole officer. How would you describe that? It was one of us recognizing that every one of them was just a normal, ordinary guy. They were all guys back then who had made bad judgments. I met very few, really very few, who were downright evil right. and mean they were poor schlubs. I said to one guy at one time, this was a guy, this is when you could smoke on the, on the subway, he had a cigarette lighter that was in the shape of a Derringer. He took it out, and a cop was looking at him, and he held his arm out and aimed it at the cop, and he got arrested. And I said to him, if stupidity was a crime, right. you would get the death penalty. Right. A lot of them were addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And I met their families, and they were just folk. And, you know, there but for the grace of God could go any one of us. But you,
1: I agree with you. I often think to myself, my God, how many moments in my life could something have gone wrong where I could be? In a docket, and I could be in a courtroom, and I could be facing prison and, time. And
0: probably had the benefit of far better circumstances than most of these guys did. Sure, right? Sure. They didn't, you know, they had difficulty finding the job. And then when
1: you see people who do have the benefit of those circumstances and still right. commit crimes, right. the made-offs I of judge the world them so more forth. harshly. Yeah, yeah. I, I always think to myself, we've got it wrong.
0: We need to right. be having longer exactly. sentences for
1: white-collar crime yeah. than we do for, yeah. uh, for drug but crime. But
0: I've always felt, and I said this Even in my last years as the head of a large corrections agency, this is what I said to my staff. I said, this is our standard of care. It is that every person in our custody is to be treated as we would want our own child treated if they were in that circumstance. You felt that way. I absolutely felt that way. Because for most people, you you think about
1: prison and imprisonment in our society. You know, prison is divided into a dual function. There's to protect the public mm-hmm. and to uh, take away these predatory people and put them yeah. away, and then the rehabilitative aspect yeah. of it. And most people- I don't I think, accept that dichotomy. I,
0: t- tell me. Well, I don't buy rehabilitation. No, by that, what you mean? I don't think that prisons do a very good job of it. I think it is a valid social purpose to punish people- to reinforce our social norms. That's why we punish people. It is a valid social purpose to punish people to extract vengeance in the name of society on behalf of aggrieved victims. It's a valid social purpose to incapacitate people who endanger us. See, that's the more important to me. And the prison system does those three things pretty well. There was a sociologist by the name of Hans Madek who once said you can't train an aviator in a submarine. You can't train a man to live in the community in prison. And if a person needs rehabilitation and they're not dangerous, the best place to rehabilitate, whatever the hell that means, is in the community now, where they're going to have to live.
1: Now, let me ask you that. Someone said something to me on this visit to Rahway, and this was probably the most significant thing someone said to me. I mean, I said the problem with this system is the sentencing relative to the classification of the crime relative to the record of the individual inmate because they said some guys come in here and the following thing takes place. They come in here and they're sorry. And then three months go by and they're really, really sorry. And six months go by and they're really, really, really sorry and they're ready to get out and they're sorry. And then you keep them in there another couple of months and they're not sorry anymore. Now they're angry. They flip. And now they're angry. And now they've switched sides and I'm wondering
0: what your opinion is. About. My opinion is New York. Well, the United States generally incarcerates people longer than any other country. It's just our culture and it's our system. And it's you think we have
1: overly lengthy prison sentences? Absolutely,
0: right. absolutely. I, I, I mean, if you for wanna, victimless crimes, for victimless crimes, and even for crimes with victims. Ever since um, Richard Nixon and the war on crime, which was really just, uh, I think a way to capture the Southern vote because he really meant a war on black people. Ever since Willie Horton, which was just an extension of that same thing, Uh no politician has been willing to reduce criminal sentences. You know, uh, during his tenure, Mario Cuomo, as governor of New York, steadfastly opposed the death penalty, as did Hugh Carey before him. Principled and to be honored for that. But he also, during his tenure built more prison beds in New York State than all the former governors of New York before him Mario combined. Cuomo did. Yeah. Why because, do you think that was? because he could not oppose efforts to make sentences and penalties longer because of his death penalty stance. Right. He had to protect himself by the showing he was to tough on everything other. else. Right. And I think this has been the politics and the media have driven it in this country to a terrible extent. So you were a parole officer for how many years? I was a parole officer for about seven years. And then what happened? Uh, Then, actually, well, I got a graduate degree, and I uh, moved uh, to upstate New York to teach in the State University of New York. I got a teaching appointment as an assistant professor. I was bored out of my mind. You went from one prison system to another. Yes, so to speak, right. although uh, an interesting story. in the My time father I, was a teacher. So in, in the time I was a parole officer, I had arrested people. I had sent people back to prison for very lengthy periods of time, guys who had committed murder, guys who had committed rape. And nobody ever laid a glove on me. It was never a problem. I'd walk up to a guy and say, look, I've got to take you back. I'd put the handcuffs on him. I'd put him in the car. We'd take him to jail. But while I was teaching, I got embroiled in a <laughs> tenure battle with a colleague who one day walked into my office and cold cocked me. So uh, I always thought wow. the teaching was somewhat right. more dangerous. Yeah, teacher on uh, untenured teachers Te- are more violent than inmates. Precisely. Uh, you know, and and what they fight about in academia is so strenuous because what they the issues are so petty. How soon after you got cold-cocked by the tenure oh, guy I did you leave? Oh, I left 6 months. I went to Albany to work for the newly appointed Commissioner of Corrections. This was 1977. I went there to work as the uh, director of work release programs. New York uh, at that time was really building up its uh, investment in halfway houses. Work release as a way of reducing the time that people spent inside upstate maximum security prisons. What was work
1: them. release then and what, was, what is it now? Is it basically the same? Well, it's been
0: decimated. It's been decimated. Why? Um, I Did think it cost a, a lot of money? No, actually it saves money. It's less expensive. And uh, the reaction from who? I I think from from the press, tough on crime, absolutely. During the last years of the Cuomo administration, I think there may have been as many as 6,000 inmates in New York participating in work release programs in New York State. And they would do things, for example, like what? Well, they would literally, they would leave the upstate prisons. They come down to a minimum security facility located in New York. There's still one on 110th Street, just off Central Park. And um, that houses how many people? That one houses about uh, probably 150 really? people. Yeah. Wow. And they get assistance finding a job. And once they find a job, they're allowed to leave the premises. They leave. They go to work. They can do some personal chores. And then they have to be back by a certain time. And then if they're doing well after a period of time, on weekends, they're allowed to go home for the weekend and come back under Governor Pataki, they dramatically reduced the program. I would say I'd be surprised if today there are even 600 people in work release in New York. And what do you attribute it to? Look, this business of corrections and and releasing people from prison is essentially nothing more than a risk management exercise, right? We can never eliminate risk. The only way to have no risk is to never let anybody out of their cell. The minute you let one guy out of the cell, you're incurring some risk. So how do you manage that risk? Well, if you have 6,000 guys in halfway houses, some of them are going to screw up. How many New York State facilities are there today, roughly? Oh, gee, I don't know offhand. Uh, there are probably 40, between 40 and 50. They state closed prisons. several state prisons of, of varying sizes, sure. right? So 40. Um, yes, but I think the story about New York that, that we should feel good about is that where in 1995, 96, New York State had 70,000 people in prison. And mind you, when I started in 1969, there were 10,000 people in prison. So in 1995, there were 70,000. Today, it's down to 50,000 as a result. What do you attribute that to? The reform of the Rockefeller drug laws. Mm-hmm. So it's there's no question in my mind that the number of people that are in prison is a function of policy decisions made by elected officials. Who do you think was ultimately responsible for bringing down those laws? Because a lot of people thought that that was just insanity. Well, look, I mean, I think that there was an advocacy organization, Drop the Rock in New York. I think that then-Governor Patterson deserves credit. I'm not sure any other governor would have accepted that. And then also, I think you cannot ignore the cost issue. The cost of imprisonment in New York State today even is still $2 billion a year. In um, just about every state in the country over the last 20 years, the cost of imprisonment has been the fastest-growing item in state budgets. In California, which for years... uh, uh, was so proud of its public university system, reached the point where it was spending more on its state prisons, which now hold 160,000 people, than it was on its state universities. So I think that it was a perfect storm. All the factors came together. The fiscal conservatives were driven by the price issues. And the, um, Interesting how that the right collision in, in conservative right. values has resulted. Right. And, th- and that's happening resulted? all over the country. And my cost concern is crime. that it's driven by cost and that it does not reflect a genuine rethinking of our approach to crime and imprisonment.
1: So when you leave the education job and you go work for the Department of Corrections in work release, when is the first time as an official of the
0: state you walked into a prison in New York State? Oh, I had walked into prisons as a parole officer, and then... So, what's the
1: first prison you ever walked first into? first prison
0: it? I ever walked into was Sing Sing. And describe that, the first time you walked into Sing Sing. Well, it's Dickensian, right? I mean, it's uh, it, it was built in 1819 or thereabouts. Uh, the prisoners hewed the stone off the palisades. The walls of the original uh, cell blocks still stand. Uh, when I was there, uh, New York still had a death penalty, and the guy who took me around uh, had been there since before the war, and I two things I remember about him, one was he said to me, kid, he says, there's nothing new under the sun in corrections. He says, everything we're doing today was done years ago. We just call it something different. And he's right. Our approach to imprisonment hadn't changed much. It's it's very much a 19th century invention. Uh-huh. And the other thing he did was he took me to see the death house where Ethel and Julius Rosenberg had been uh, executed. Horn was only five years old when the Rosenbergs
1: were killed. But growing up in a Jewish household in the 1950s, their death nonetheless had a powerful impact. Sixteen years after first seeing the death house at Sing Sing, Horn was executive director of the New York State Division of Parole,
0: and his opinions had evolved. When I was a parole officer, we had an expression, trail him, nail him, and jail him. And the idea was that it was up to the parolee to do all the work, And if he screwed up, we would catch him and lock him up. And we had this belief that if we locked him up before he committed a more serious crime, we were performing a public service. I had uh, come to the conclusion that parole and the prison system generally wasn't doing enough to ease the transition for people leaving prison. When an individual comes out of prison, everybody gets out of prison, and they have some statistical probability of succeeding or failing. And we can improve those odds— a little bit, if we attend to three things. One was sobriety. And I'm not a teetotaler. I don't make a moral judgment. Mm. But sobriety is a primary condition. If you don't stay sober, and I mean alcoholism and drugs, you will fail. Mm. You have to have a place to live. If you're living on the street, if you're living in the, sh- in the shelter, you're going to fail. Today, guys coming out of prison in-, in New York City's housing market, they can't afford a place to live. Of course. Right? I mean, you say, oh, you yeah. get a job. Well, People well, coming out of Yale Law can't, School can't, can't afford to. Afford to, to that's place right. In, yeah. Exactly. And the prison system has all sorts of rules. You can't have roommates who are ex-offenders. Right. You know, the Yale guy and the prisoner maybe should room together. So I felt that we, ought to, we needed to help men leaving prison stay sober. We needed to help them find a place to live. And we needed to help them find a job. It's a three-legged stool. If you, you, know, if you can't stay sober, you won't hold a job. If you don't have a job, you can't pay the rent. And if you lose your apartment and you're living on the street, you're hanging out with guys. You're going to get stoned. So it's it's a it's a vicious cycle, and one that Horn strived to change.
1: Coming up in a minute, Martin Horn talks about serving under Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge, his return to New York, and his ultimate decision to leave public service
0: because I felt that I could not trust my workforce any longer.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
3: From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeart Media. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator
0: of Movie Phone, The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
1: This is Alec Baldwin. In 1995, there were 19 newly elected governors across the country. A new administration often means new staff, including new corrections directors. Martin Horn took advantage of the moment.
0: And so I started making uh, cold calls, sending letters to every newly elected governor Dear governor elect, here's my resume. Wouldn't you like me to be your corrections director? I called a friend in uh, Pennsylvania. Actually, I called the president of the college I had graduated from in Pennsylvania, and he said, well, gee, I don't know, but I'll check. And he called me back the next day. He said, well, I spoke to the guy that lobbies for the, our college in, in Harrisburg. And he says, and here's what they said. They said, the newly elected governor, they did, did not expect to get elected. You know, send me your resume. Here's the address of the transition office. And put a Post-it note on top that says, put this on the pile of corrections because they're so disorganized. They've got resumes coming in through the transoms. So I did exactly that. I, dear governor-elect... <laughs> Tom Ridge. Uh, Tom Ridge. Let me introduce myself. I'd like to be your corrections director. Here's what I've done. Here's what I... And I put a Post-it note on it that says, put it on the pile for corrections. And two weeks later, his deputy chief of staff called You owe him. a lot to the Post-it company, you? Huh? I sure do. How long were you in Pennsylvania with Ridge? Well, I was in Pennsylvania with Ridge for seven years. I was commissioner of correction for six And then at the end of the sixth year, he appointed me to be secretary of administration, which took me out of the correction department and put me in charge of labor relations and IT. uh, So you liked that job if you stayed there for seven years. Did you develop a good relationship with Ridge? I I think the world of Tom Ridge. Right. I really think the world of Tom Ridge.
1: Well, well how would you, uh, to the extent you can, characterize the six years you ran the system? And they Pennsylvania? were,
0: but for the fact that I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, they were the greatest uh, six years of my professional career. Truly. Was, oh yeah, I had I had the best boss you could have. He he knew how to be a leader, and he knew how to back up his people, and he knew how to hold people accountable. And he was the world's best listener, better than any politician I've ever met. I think partly because he has a, a hearing impairment, but he listened intently and he briefed well. He had good values and good instincts. I didn't agree with him on many issues politically, but on on the core issues, I, I think he was a he was a, and he was a, he was just a good person. He was an approachable guy, and many of the elected officials that I've worked for
1: aren't that way. In whatever way you can characterize this, how would you describe the, the system you inherited when you went in, and what would you leave behind six years later? Well, I think you know,
0: Pennsylvania is interesting. Pennsylvania is sort of the birthplace of American corrections, where the first prison, the Eastern State Penitentiary, which exists to this day, is still open as a museum, was created in the early 1800s. The, the Pennsylvania Society for the Alleviation of the Misery of Prisoners counted among its members Benjamin Franklin. And uh, there was a very strong Quaker influence and a very different feel. When I got to Pennsylvania, the prisons overwhelmingly were very different than in New York. There was a level of civility in those prisons that I had not experienced. In New York State, in the prisons in the 70s and 80s, you could walk through the prisons and you could feel the antagonism and the tension. You could cut it with a knife. I used to say— What do you attribute that to? Oh, I don't know. I think part of it the is- training The training of the The guards training themselves? the tradition, yeah, yeah. yeah well, that brings time.
1: us, obviously, to something that we, did, that we did want to bring up, which was about this story that broke about the program at Rikers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that, well, what happened there? Well, I don't, to this day, I'm not entirely sure what happened. I will tell you this. Is that it something it's something you think can happen anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And it is, I will say, what caused me to decide to retire, because I felt that I could not trust my workforce any longer.
1: In October 2008, an 18-year-old boy was killed at Rikers Island by fellow inmates. The Village Voice had been reporting for the past year about violence among prisoners at Rikers. Guards were said to be looking the other way. In 2012, The Voice obtained and published graphic pictures of knife wounds and other injuries from inside the jail walls. The largest jail system in the country had a fight club that was condoned and even promoted by jail officials. The program, as it was called, delivered the most challenging moments of
0: Horn's career. The story uh, is that a young man by the name of Christopher Robinson was put into a particular housing unit uh, in the adolescent housing unit, and he had been transferred there because in the unit that he had been in previously, he had actually been extorting from a weaker inmate. And he was caught. So his classification was increased, and he was put into this higher classification unit. So, you know, there's sort of a pecking order. So now he gets there. And these guys who had been there for a while, who were this clique, they step up to him. And they said, we're going to extort from you. And he says to them, I'm the extorter (laughs) here. You don't extort from me. So they tuned him up. They beat him up come to find out that they had been extorting from other inmates and that this had been going on for some time with the prior knowledge and arguably the connivance of the officers. And basically, the officers had made a devil's bargain with the inmates. Look, you don't beat us up. You don't attack us. And we'll let you run, your run your the show. ship." Exactly. Right. Which, by the way, you know, the job that we ask corrections officers to do are terrifying. Most officers... Perhaps all officers are scared out of their minds. We ask them to supervise 50 often angry, sometimes mentally ill young men. In during open, the worst period of their lives. During the worst period of their lives who are craving some addictive substance in an open dormitory. And they're in that dormitory by themselves. So how does this one individual assert himself? He does not carry a weapon. He does not carry a baton. There may be another officer in a control room some 10, 20 feet away who can sound the alarm and ask for help. But by the time help arrives, he can be beaten to a bloody pulp. So it's 2 in the morning. You're making your rounds, walking around this dormitory of 50, 21, 22-year-old Guys in the back corner, you stumble across two of them smoking weed. You have a decision to make. You can turn your back and walk the other way. You can try and bust <laughs> them and run the risk that their friends will pounce on you and pummel you. So which happens, which certainly happens, how frequently? more frequently than we'd like it to. And that's right. another reason that I left, because I feel the prisons are understaffed. I think it's is wrong to ask one man. And by the way, today, more than 50% of the correction officers in the city of New York are women. So, So when you say that two guys smoke weed... The corrections officer comes,
1: he sees he got a decision to make, and someone's going to pummel you. Do you have a system in place where you know who's more disposed toward violent behavior inside the facility when they come in, and why can't you separate them before in an anticipatory way?
0: Well, we have what a system we refer to as classification, and you basically separate the most serious inmates and put them in maximum security. But at the end of the day, somebody has to supervise those maximum security inmates. What um, reforms do you think could be made in supervising maximum security inmates? So well, be less- generally, I, I don't like d- open dormitories. I think right. every inmate should have his own cell. Cells do not have to be oppressive. They do not have to be depressing. They can be bright and airy. They don't have to be oppressive. And they have cellmates, or everybody has their own room? Everybody should have their own room. I don't you, like double-selling. You, do. selling. I don't, and you I, don't? Why? No.
1: Well... I think that... You don't think that's cruel and unusual? People have no I, human I, contact? I think,
0: well, I, I don't like to use those terms, cruel and unusual. And in fact, the Supreme Court has said that there is no one-man-one-cell rule living in the Constitution. But I think that we all have privacy needs.
1: To your knowledge, and I would trust your opinion, do the inmates, do they want their own cell? They, do they prefer
0: it? Some like company. Some like company for the wrong reasons. But most people, I think, want their privacy. This is your safety zone. Right. Nobody can get you if you want to come out... You know, different people go to prisons, and and they're terrified to be out in the prison yard with sure. all these other inmates. Is there a imposing. constant pulsing sense of fear for people who are in the prison yard? Not in a well-run prison. Look, it's the job of the officers to keep the inmates safe, and if we don't keep the inmates safe, they'll find ways to keep themselves safe. How will they do that? They'll do that by joining gangs, and they'll do that by creating. How prevalent an army is that in prison, New York State now? A lot of gangs. I can't comment on New York State prisons. I know that it's it's certainly a problem in New York City.
1: And in the city, and they do these gangs, I guess, like, if I got into prison tomorrow, is it just expected I'm going to join
0: a gang for my own protection? Well, you see, this gets to the program. You're the new guy. You come into this open dormitory of 50 inmates, and there's a group of uh, maybe 10 or 15 of them. Perhaps they know themselves from the street. Perhaps they self-identify as Bloods or Crips or Latin Kings or... Aryan Nation. Whatever. Not too many of those in New York. But if you're in California, sure. And they step to you and they say, here's the deal. Are you with us? And if if you're stupid enough to walk into a a, a dormitory where there are 20 inmates who call themselves bloods and you say, hell, I'm a crip. Well, they're going to do the same thing. They do to you on the street. Get off our turf. Prison and jail is this artificial scarcity that we create, right? So there's, by and large, little food. There's no drugs. Phones. There's no girls. There's no sex. You know, there's no money. And so there's phones, a black market for all There's that. a black market. And so, as with any place else, a group of inmates emerges, and they say, we control it. The simplest thing, and this is what was happening, certainly in the adolescent jail where that program occurred, there were never enough chairs for all the inmates. And a group of inmates would say, on Saturday mornings, when this program's on or when this sporting event is on, there 's one TV set it 's for the black guys, and you Spanish guys, you stay in your cells because that 's our time right now, an officer has a choice to make first of all, he should see it going on, and if he sees it going on take he take away intervene. that he should take that
1: away were there any prosecutions of any of the, oh, yeah. the officers
0: uh, two officers actually were convicted of gang assault right. And uh, five or seven of the inmates ultimately were convicted. I don't know what the charge was, but it might have been manslaughter. I mean, I don't think they intended to kill Christopher Robinson. The troubling thing was that there had been stories for some time, uh, and this is what The Voice documented, that this had been going on. There were breadcrumbs, and that if we had done a better job of following those breadcrumbs, we perhaps would have seen it earlier and and prevented it. Do people- uh... But, you know, I'd like to get back to another point you make. You know, you make the point about- Uh, how we deal with white-collar criminals or with everybody uses the Madoff example. You know Martha Stewart? Mm -hmm. You've met her? Many times, yeah. yeah. I'm sure she's a lovely person. So we know that uh, some years ago, she um, lied to a federal officer investigating supposed uh, insider stock manipulation. She was not convicted of the stock manipulation. She was convicted of lying to a federal officer. And she got, what, four months in a federal prison in Alderson. So, today, but for her current troubles with Macy's and Penny's, she's better off than she was when she went to prison. What did society gain by that? Let me suggest to you what if instead we had erected a 10 um, foot high platform in Times Square and we had climate controlled it? We enclosed it in plexiglass, we heated it, we air conditioned it, and we put a, a stool. You know, like a bar stool in it, and so we like a stocks. Well, I wouldn't put her in stocks, but I would say you know, similar. No, every day, you were to be here at nine o'clock in the morning, and you were to remain here until five in the afternoon. You know, we'll protect you from the elements, and you'll sit here with a sign around your neck that says, "I'm a liar." Mm-hmm. You can bathe, but you can't get all dressed up. You can't wear jewelry. You can't wear makeup. You know, you can attend to all your personal needs, that sort of thing. We're not looking to harm you, but you can't do all that stuff. And after you've sat in Times Square for some period of time where the world could see that you are a liar, you are to perform community service for a year where you're to go out to uh, East New York and teach young women. About nutrition, about dressing for success, about all of the things that you do so well. And in addition, you have to uh, pay back, treble or quadruple what you made on this financial fraud. And that's it. But we're not going to imprison you. Would we have had as great a deterrent effect? Would we have punished her? Would we have convinced her not to try to do it again? Would we have deterred others? I would argue yes. And yet, we don't do those things. We don't use shame in our society. Well, but
1: uh, but I I agree with you in terms of what you're suggesting. However, we do have that now. We have the internet. As my friend once said, the internet represents the death of forgetting. Martha Stewart is forever going to be referred to as, you know, formerly incarcerated, blah, blah, blah. That's going to stay with her for the rest of her life. But
0: was she punished? My point is simply this: as a society, our primary response to crime is prison. Right. It's the only tool the only in thing our tool belt. People understand. Beds. You know the uh, aphorism that if the only tool on your belt is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Everything nail, looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, that's that's true with respect to our approach to imprisonment. Um, what do you think of the whole prison ink
1: notion and the privatization of prisons and the the, the 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 myriad of things that arise from
0: that? Um. It's a very complicated issue, and it's very easy to be opposed to private prisons. It's very easy to demonize private prisons. Private prisons arose because governments needed them. Governments needed them because in the uh, 80s and 90s, the American prison population was growing faster than government could create capacity for prisoners. I have visited private prisons, and I have visited many public prisons, And I have colleagues who work in the private prison industry. Running a prison isn't rocket science. What they do is they hire guys like me to run their prisons. Mm -hmm. And a private prison will run as well or as poorly as the government who contracts with it wants it to. So if private prisons don't do what government asks them to do, it's the fault of government for allowing them to. Right. But is it, a, is
1: it understood in the current culture that private prisons, it's kind of a wink and a nod and we're not going to enforce these contracts? I, I, I am sure that is true in some places and not in others. Right. Um, a little over five years ago, the Board of Corrections in the city allowed mm-hmm. officials to listen to inmate yes. telephone conversations. Yes. What did you think of that? I asked for it. Why? Why? What be- was going
0: on that you felt you needed to have that advantage? <laughs> well, for you get you get to the question of the program. Inmates are running their scams over the phones. Inmates are arranging for drugs to be brought into the prison over They're the phones. They're operating. They're operating over the phones. There's no constitutional right to even have phones in prisons. We could rip all the phones out, and we would be well within our constitutional uh, authority. The federal law is clear that with proper notice and the consent of uh, at least one party, a conversation can be listened to and recorded. I felt that by giving the inmates ample opportunity, basically we said to them, look, by choosing to use our phones that we're making available to you, you are waiving your right to privacy. Mm -hmm. If you want to retain your right to privacy, write a letter. If you had um, three things that you
1: were going to change about the uh, federal, state, city, what would you change about the way we deal with convicted
0: felons? Well, so that that excludes the city. Let's talk about federal and state. Right, federal and state. First thing I'd do is I'd legalize drugs. Right.
1: When when you say that, though, I mean, obviously, there are people who, who inside that argument talk about cocaine and heroin. You don't care. You'd legalize everything. I would legalize drugs. We couldn't possibly do worse than we're doing now. Right. But what would you do to take it even further? I mean, you've been involved with the system for a long, long time. You'd have the government dispensing cocaine and heroin? I would sell it in the liquor stores. Right. And I would tax the hell out of it. Right. You just license it and sell it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you as yes, far as marijuana and I, is I, then concerned. I would take
0: all the money we're spending and all the money we're going to make, and I would reinvest it in prevention. You know, I grew up never using a seatbelt. And to this day, I'll drive around without a seatbelt. My kids were now You can end 30. up in prison for that, you know. Uh, I suppose. My my son, when he was two years old, if I started to back the car out before he was buckled in, would have a tantrum. Right, right. It's Kid- a fewer thing. kids are smoking today. We can prevent. We can provide treatment, sure. and there will be people money. And there will be people money to spare.
1: Bobby Kennedy had the funniest line of all. Bobby Kennedy said, "If you ever thought the day would come when you were going to bend down with a plastic bag and pick up your dog's poop on the street right. and throw it in the car, whoever thought that was going to happen? Go. You know, fifty years right. right ago." And, and
0: we recycle our tin cans. Right. So I would legalize drugs. I would reduce the um, length of time that people who do commit crimes for nonviolent have. crimes. Well, for all crimes, but for those people who scare us the most. John Muhammad. Remember the Washington sniper? Yes. Right? That guy scares me, right? He was just shooting people at random. Right. You have to incapacitate him forever, right? right? Jeffrey Dahmer, right? right. You had to right. incapacitate. The, of- the, uh, the mentally ill. The homicidal mentally ill. The mentally ill. That's a whole different story. Right. That's That's item four. Because they don't belong in prison, right? right? The great shame of our society today is that 20% of the people in prison have a mental illness. More people receive acute mental health care in the jails in this country than they do in the mental hospitals. Rikers Island provides more acute medical uh, psychiatric care than Bellevue. The largest sy- provider of sy- acute psychiatric care in the United States is the Los Angeles County Jail. Mentally ill people don't belong in jail, and it is a scandal in our and society. crime. you're
1: not allowed to give violent inmates in any kind of a system drugs.
0: You're not allowed to drug them, or are you? Well, if 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 they're being treated for mental illness, people not illness, just, just
1: for being violent. You're not saying they're mentally. Oh, yeah, but you are not even can't say- drug
0: them to quiet them down. You you, you, you no, can't no, no, no without a court order. I mean, you can if there's a court order. And you and or do they get court orders? Very rarely. Very rarely. Very. Don't equate violence with mental illness. What if we talk about those guys that are violent? Uh, there are some people who need to be incapacitated, and I would incapacitate, and that doesn't bother me. A guy who was a serial. Uh, rapist, a serial child molester, it doesn't bother me in the least. So, other than that them, shorter up.
1: sentences for everybody.
0: But everybody else, the the guy who commits a, a robbery, the guy who commits a burglary, the guy who steals your car, the you know, uh, We've they don't need to go to prison for we, as long as hey, they do. Exactly. What's number three? Um, number three is I would change the way we release people from prison. I would actually do away with the parole boards and discretionary parole. I would uh, make every sense a, a determinate sentence. I would say, you're gonna be under the control of the state for a period of time. Let's just say, for argument's sake, five years. For the first three of those years, you're gonna to go to prison, and we'll leave it up to the corrections people to decide maximum, medium, minimum. But at the end of three years, you're coming back to the community. And when you come back to the community, you're gonna live in a halfway house. And while you're in the halfway house, we are going to help you connect with a relapse prevention program to prevent your relapse to drug abuse. And we're going to help you to get involved in an AA program. And we're going to help you find a job. And you're not going to have to pay us any money. You're going to save the money you earn on your job. And we're going to help you find a place to live. And when you've saved enough money to pay a month's rent and a month's deposit and maybe another month, you can go home and live on your own. And we're done with you. What's
1: wrong with the state, for example, building a facility that is an aftercare facility for prisoners to come and to live where they go to work and they continue to produce things that the state needs. Is that a possibility? So that's a possibility. Work- I mean, I,
0: I, I'm a believer that these community-based facilities have to be small. Right. Uh, I and think not resemble prisons. They should be normalizing. The right. point is that people need to be normalized right. as they right. return to the community. So I would, I would have fixed sentences. And that way, what happens now is uh, Johnny Jones goes to prison for uh, 5 to 15 years. Well, is it five or is it 15? <sighs> and if the parole board paroles him at five, the victim says, my God, I thought he was going away for 15 years. Or he goes in front of the parole board and they say, Johnny, we're going to hold you for five more years. He says, when I pleaded guilty and my lawyer told me that if I did everything right and kept my nose clean, I'd be out in five. And the parole board says, well, we weren't in the room when that deal got made. We're not bound by that. So it, the whole system currently is deceptive, causes people to distrust the system. It right. undermines respect for the rule of law. And it, it doesn't allow us to uh, release individuals from prison in a planful way. So I would, uh, those are the three things I would change.
1: Are you glad you're done? Are you glad you're wa- walking away from that? Reality it, was, it, was, world? It,
0: was, it was a fascinating career. I am absolutely glad I'm done. You are?
1: Um, Was it spiritually deadening in other ways as well? I mean, because I I can't think of anything more horrific than when I was in prison. On some level,
0: there is no place else a grown man could have as much fun. When I was the warden of Hudson Prison, I used to uh, say to people that it was a cross between being the headmaster of a somewhat down-on-its-heels boys' school and the King of England, because you were in charge. And you had to deal with everything from the pipes in this 100-year-old facility breaking, to making sure that uh, there was adequate food and that the food was well-prepared, to making sure that there were no contagious diseases, that tuberculosis didn't spread, that measles didn't spread, that people got psychiatric care. You had to deal with labor relations. You had to deal with ethical issues. You had to deal with legal issues. You were the Lord High Governor. And it was fascinating. And in that respect, I, I couldn't have had a better career.
1: Today, Martin Horn is a distinguished lecturer in corrections at John Jay College and serves as the executive director of the Permanent Sentencing Commission, which works to clarify, simplify, and create New York State's sentencing guidelines. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
3: also with other interesting guests then listen to marketing school every weekday on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
4: hello